From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Reaction to a recent Atlanta Journal-Constitution investigation into senior care facilities has been explosive. The series tallies nearly 600 cases of neglect and 90 of abuse with harrowing stories of vulnerable seniors and the facilities entrusted with their care. Governor Kemp's office says the investigation reveals problems that must be addressed. Representative Sharon Cooper, chair of the House Health and Human Services Committee, says she'll introduce legislation to beef up inspections and staffing at the facilities. But the most heartbreaking reaction comes from readers who responded with their own stories of family members they believe have suffered mistreatment at senior care facilities. Meanwhile, industry group Georgia Senior Living Association tells the AJC it has a great intolerance for wrongdoing or substandard care. It cites robust inspections but acknowledged a need for better training. GBB-TV will air a special on the investigation this Thursday night at 7. It's called Unprotected, Georgia's Broken Senior Care Industry. On some nights, workers at the Sunrise at East Cobb assisted living facility struggled when they were trying to keep a close watch on the frail elderly people they had in their care. On the night of August 14, 2017, Luna came to work for his overnight shift on the memory care unit. He was put in charge of Adam Bennett's care. That night ended up changing everything for Bennett and his whole family, and it would change everything for Landon Terrell, too. AJC reporter Carrie Teagarden spent a year working on the series. I spoke to her when it first came out and asked her to summarize her findings. These are beautiful facilities that have popped up everywhere. They have gorgeous lobbies. They're very expensive. And the assumption is that the care would match the appearance. And what we found is that's too often not the case. Yeah. In fact, the marketing materials, the gap between the marketing materials and what's actually going on. The first series and the first article in the series rather focuses on one particularly egregious example of that gap at Sunrise. This is a facility in East Cobb. Tell us about what happened when one resident, Adam Bennett, was promised and, and what actually happened. Adam Bennett was a World War II veteran in his 90s. He had moved into Sunrise because it was right around the corner from his daughter's house. She was looking for a great facility for him. He had been really happy in independent living and other facilities in Atlanta, but he'd just gotten pretty frail. But this is a place that cost over $6,000 a month, and they assured um, his daughter that they could meet his needs. And it ended up turning into a murder case. Basically, he told a a caregiver after an overnight shift that he was beaten. And those were really the last words that he spoke. He had broken ribs, um, internal injuries, bruises all over his face that morning. What happened that night? No one will ever know, but he had a caregiver that night named Landon Terrell, who was charged with murder. A jury, after a week of testimony, really couldn't determine exactly what happened. Uh, Mr. Bennett had some dementia, so there was an argument that he shouldn't be believed. So the caregiver did end end up getting convicted of elder neglect, but the family was devastated. And I think one thing I've, I've experienced in talking to numerous families is they go to so much trouble, so much expense to care for someone in their last years and if that goes wrong, mm. there's no undoing that. Right. There's no there's no kind of getting over that after someone had been such a beloved family member who'd provided and been a, a just a, a 
a great person. Um, I'm going through it myself yes. with an in-law here in Georgia. But, the, you know, cases, a, a murder case is one thing, but there are so many cases that you document about just neglect, for example. Uh, a, another World War II veteran left outside in 100-degree heat. Yes. AIDS assaulting residents, even some sexual assault mm-hmm. among residents. A woman whose broken hip was unattended for nine days. Were these reported when they happened? Well, some were, some weren't. The whole issue of things not being reported and then Georgians being able to find out about them even when they are is a big part of of what we're looking at um, in our report because it's very hard to find out real factual information about all these facilities around the state that are inspected but to try to find information is very difficult and then the fact that complete information isn't there you know we found it's very common for facilities not to report incidents that they're required to report and we have a story about how prosecutors who specialize in elder abuse are very concerned across the state that they're not being told about the cases that they want to know about and for them that concern is okay there's still people working in the industry who perhaps should not be Right. Well, the Department of Community Health is in charge of licensing and inspecting the state's senior care facilities. But as you said, you found that many of these violations missing, they're outdated often, and prosecutors can't get their hands on reports. How does Georgia's DCH compare to similar oversight departments across the country? Well, in terms of transparency, not well. Uh, Many other states have much better websites. And in fact, we at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution spent months creating a website that we just opened up for consumers to give them this kind of information because the state wasn't doing it. In other states, for example, they'll tell you um, about complaints even if they weren't substantiated. So you could find out, hey, there were 10 complaints about XYZ. Even if, and they'll say, look, we went and inspected this and, and here's what we looked at and didn't find it. In Georgia, you'll see uh, we went and, and inspected complaint number, blah, blah, blah with no information about what it was about. So you're kind of left wondering, you know, well, what was that? And was there anything to it? Carrie Teagarden is my guest. She's an investigative reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're talking about her series that she's been working on, on assisted living homes in Georgia, revealing a, let's say, somber state of affairs for senior care. And let's just also point out that you did, the AJC did build this online database where people can go and look at the places that they're concerned about, maybe that someone they're looking at, considering maybe where someone lives. But Upwards of 3,700 separate violations that you and your team come through. Mm. But is this universal or are there are some facilities that are more egregious than others? Oh, definitely. And I think this is why we wanted to do the website is we wanted to give some people some guidance to help them sort the good from the bad, right? Because the marketing materials are just make every facility sound like a country club. They have, you know, chef driven meals. They have these beautiful facilities and we have an element of our series that kind of talks about the realities versus the marketing. But you can go on and get real information. Okay, we collected police reports for many facilities, the inspection reports, obviously, we rated each violation. So you could get a sense of how serious it was and then gave you um, some charts to show how does this facility compare with others in terms of violations. 
And this is for across the entire state of Georgia. And these are the places that are private pay. They tend to be about $3,000 to $8,000 a month. So it's significant expense. And they're, we're seen as like the ultimate solution. You know, nobody wants to put their parent in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And this is seen as like the really nice place. In too many cases, they're not living up to the hype. Right. Well, the AJC did find more than 600 cases that it deemed as neglect. You said they rated them. Department of Community Health cited only four. Now, why are these numbers so different? You know, it's weird in Georgia. They don't really use the word neglect. They will have rules that we determined were neglect. Um, They will sometimes cite people for abuse, which is defined, but it's kind of a missing thing in our definitions in Georgia. Um, There are a long list of rules that people have to comply with, and many of them are not um, all that stringent. For example, staffing, okay? In Georgia, you only have to have one frontline staff member caring for people for every 15 residents during the day and every 25 residents at night. I mean, imagine... If you're a, a caregiver with very little training, um, trying to deal with 25 people overnight and people start having issues, the the situations that people find themselves in, again, as with very little training, I can't imagine it myself. Um, and it's very low-wage jobs, 10 to $12 right. an hour. Right. And, and so understaffing is a huge problem, not having trained staff. <clears throat> what have the facilities said in response to this <clears throat> series and other complaints? The industry really was a, a little hard to get information out of. And so was the state for this series. Um, it hasn't it's an industry that hasn't had a lot of scrutiny. But I think they feel like they're serving an important need. And that's true. Consumer advocates in Georgia fought for years to get the designation of assisted living, which allowed a little bit higher level of care than what we'd had before, which was personal care homes. And this was seen as a way for people to age in place in a residential environment, okay? The kind of setting that we all would sort of prefer over a medical institutional model, which is more like what nursing homes are. Um, And I think the concern is that people are living longer and they're very frail. And this is not a medical model. So it's a place where people are supposed to get, you know, showers, meals, help getting dressed. But there aren't nurses and doctors running around, you know, checking on people. I think it's true that it's a needed industry. But I think what we found is it's not delivering the care that people would expect, especially given the price tag with it. And that your desire is to give people a very comfortable you know, experience in their older years when they're frail. Despite the salt water pools and other right. amenities right. that are advertised in these places. If you can't tell, I'm on this on this beat right now. Well, okay, so Money's report also touched on abuse between residents, including allegations of physical and sexual violence. Now, mm-hmm. how is it, how how do you track this, especially given so many residents with memory issues? Yes. You know, you don't want to blame the residents for this kind of thing. It's just it's it's part of dementia. But what we found is that um, the experts in this will tell you it's the responsibility of the facility to staff adequately so that they can protect residents from each other. You know, we found in inspection reports, you know, residents sleeping in each other's beds. There's a case of a hospice worker who was so upset about her patient being 
abused that that they had to take extreme measures because they felt like the facility wasn't doing its part to protect the resident. It's complex. And we found that even though the the training is very minimal, it's very commonplace, even with people dealing with folks with dementia, are not getting even that very minimal required on-the-job training. So imagine being put in that situation of trying to handle someone with dementia. It's a very, very hard job. Very hard job for very little pay. Right. Okay, so this is a pretty heavy topic, and there are some tragic and very difficult stories in here I do want to note. How has this reporting been for you personally? We've just got a, a minute to go. I feel like the sad part is the helplessness of many of these people. We wrote about a woman with um, dementia who the allegation is a, a care aide burned her with cigarettes all over her body. Mm. Things like that, that you just think someone is so vulnerable, sometimes unable to speak, won't be believed. They're some of the most vulnerable people I've written about. And that's what I think gets to you. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people that are struggling with the same thing, finding the right place. The outpouring from our readers has been huge, and we hope people will continue to contact us. And also folks who've worked in the facilities, we would love to hear from you as well. Carrie Teagarden, thank you for your time. Thank you. Carrie Teagarden, the AJC investigative reporter behind the series Unprotected, Georgia's Broken Senior Care Industry. A TV special of that same name will air on Thursday night at 7 on GPB-TV. Now, Carrie did mention the database where you can research senior care facilities in Georgia. It's at AJC.com slash unprotected. Coming up, Richard Jewell's name was plastered across the media as the prime suspect in the 1996 Olympic bombing. That's despite saving countless lives at the scene. The inside story of the suspect, when On Second Thought continues. Stay with us. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. On Tuesday, July 30th, 1996, Richard Jewell was praised as a hero on NBC's Today Show. The security guard hired for the Summer Olympics in Atlanta spotted a suspicious knapsack at Centennial Olympic Park, where tens of thousands of visitors were gathered. Two people died and 111 were injured when the bomb inside exploded. But Jewell's vigilance and the evacuation that followed likely saved hundreds of lives. Less than 12 hours after chatting with Katie Couric, Jewell was being questioned by the FBI as the primary suspect in that bombing. The Suspect is a new book about how law enforcement and the media turned a hapless, innocent man into presumed bomber. Authors Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin were both there. Alexander as U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. Kevin Salwin was editor for the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the 96 Summer Olympic Games. The book is just out, and Salwin and Alexander consulted on the film Richard Jewell for director Clint Eastwood, which was coming out in early December. Together, they will be at the Atlanta History Center to talk about the book tonight. Kevin Selwyn, Kent Alexander, welcome. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, your book, The Suspect, tells the story of what in a coup it was for Atlanta to win the Centennial Olympic Games. This is a campaign started in 1987 when Atlanta was called one of the murder capitals of the U.S. and the city too busy to reload. Now, Olympics are always targets for terrorists. And in the early 90s, we have Oklahoma City, we have Ruby Ridge, we have these domestic terrorism incidents happening as they were preparing the venues. Richard Jewell is among some 30,000 people hired for security. 
What had his record in law enforcement been up to that, Kevin? Well, Richard was very much a mixed bag. He was a, he was in many ways a terrific rural police officer. Um, he loved road duty. He had um, he had worked at a couple of jobs in North Georgia at the Habersham County Sheriff's Office, and then at the um, Piedmont College campus as a campus police officer. But Richard was often a little bit more zealous than people wanted him to be. He was also a terrible driver, and that <laughs> absolutely redounded to his disbenefit. Because what happened uh, was that multiple times, Richard, when he was at the Habersham County Sheriff's Office, he would wreck vehicles. And so he came to Atlanta as part of this security force, um, basically to resuscitate his career and to wait for the possibility of other police jobs to reopen because nobody was going to hire before the games. Mm -hmm. So Jewel was the guard stationed at the AT&T Sound and Light Tower at Centennial Park. Then just minutes before a 911 call comes in, warning of a bomb set to explode in half an hour, Jewel sees something suspicious. Tell us how he found the bomb. So he was going around and he came across a group of kids drinking and they're shotgunning buds. Budweiser's. He was trying to get them out of there, and they wouldn't leave. So he flagged down a GBI agent named Tom Davis, who was an assistant supervisor in the park, to get him to get them out of there. Finally, they got them out of there, and the, the package, the Alice pack, a military pack that held a bomb, was hidden under a bench right next to the tower. Richard Jewell's the one who pointed to it after the kids left and said, that shouldn't be there. Both of them, both of them, Tom Davis and Richard Jewell, walk around different sides of the tower asking everyone, not their package. So next thing that happened is they called it in, two bomb techs, one from ATF, one from FBI, come in, wind their way through the crowd, crawl up, look at the package. They're not supposed to touch it, but one of them does open the lip of it. And Richard's watching them as the guy's got a pen light and the guy sees wires and pipes and suddenly realizes this is the real thing. And so they call in the bomb squad. At that point, I'll turn it over to you. Sure, yeah. And at that point, uh, actually before that, Richard runs up and down the tower to give people a pre-warning. Hey, there's a suspicious package. We may have a problem. If I tell you it's a real bomb, you get out of here as fast as possible. And then he runs to back to the outside. They create a perimeter. There are 50,000 roughly people in the park. And maybe 10,000 in this area, fairly close to the stage and the tower. And um, as soon as Richard realizes, yes, this is actually a bomb, he races back in the tower. He says, all you people, get out of here, get out of here now. He's literally pushing people down the stairs mm -hmm. to try to save their lives. And at 1.20 in the morning, as the uh, GBI and other agents are considering, do we close this park? Do we evacuate these people? The bomb goes off. That is audio from a camcorder video taken by a tourist. There's a, just a gruesome scene there. Alice Hawthorne, a woman, dies with her young daughter there. A Turkish cameraman has a heart attack rushing to the scene. Uh, in all, 111 people injured. The ground is just covered with shrapnel from the largest bomb the FBI or the ATF had ever encountered. Authorities said the device appeared to be a pipe bomb loaded with nails and screws designed to penetrate human flesh. Kent, you were awakened by a phone call. You rushed to the scene, and later you met Richard Jewell. 
Yes, I, I met Richard that morning. He was standing outside what was then called the Inform Building at the loading dock, and I went over to shake his hand and to thank him for what he did, and Tom Davis too, because enough of the story had gotten out so that we knew that without the two of them, a lot more people would have died. So that was, that was my first contact with Richard, and uh, things changed after that, but I, was, I just remember shaking his hand, and, and he said, uh, sir, I was just doing my job. Well, that was a line he used in the following three days when he was helping investigators with details of discovering the bomb and being squired about as a hero and praised for bravery on CNN, on Good Morning America, and on the Today Show on Tuesday with Katie Couric. The FBI starts getting calls from people who, who knew Jewel, and Quantico starts its own investigation and psychological profile of Jewel. So suddenly he's a suspect. Ken, how did the FBI approach this investigation into Jewel? So there were two prongs or two parallel tracks. One, investigators went up to Habersham County to talk to everybody who knew Richard Jewell. And the, what came back was, yeah, he's a little overzealous, kind of wannabe cop, and he really is going to want to get back in law enforcement. The parallel track to that was the behavioral science unit. They had taken a look at the interviews with CNN. And they took a look at those and took a look at just a couple of reports that had come out in an interview with Richard Jewell and crafted a profile of the potential bomber. And the profile was one of Richard Jewell. And it was part interview advice, how to interview Richard Jewell. And it was part saying, though this isn't a science and subjective and all of that, part of it was very much, this is your guy. He did it. And so when the interviews in Habersham County saying wannabe cop, wants to get back in law enforcement, overzealous came through, and the same language independently appeared in this profile, and the two came together on Monday afternoon, it was uh, kind of lock solid at that point. And Richard Jewell jumped from a third-tier possible suspect, because you always look at the guy who found the bomb, to absolutely number one. So by the time the Katie Couric interview came around on Tuesday morning, the he had been tailed since the night before. There was a 24-hour uh, tailing of Jewel. My guests are Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin, co-authors of The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. Alexander was U.S. attorney based in Atlanta when Richard Jewell was presumed to be behind the bombing at Centennial Park during the 96 Olympics. Salwin was editor for the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the Games. So there are 15,000 reporters from around the world covering the games. But, of course, the local paper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, had strategically wanted to own these games with 325 reporters covering the Olympics, including Kathy Scruggs, who's a prominent character in your book. Who was Kathy Scruggs, and what was her reputation as a reporter? Kathy was, she was in many ways a throwback from the 1930s newspaper wars. She was... Um, She's sexy, she's profane, she's a heavy drinker, a heavy smoker, she keeps a gun in her purse, you know, and, um, and loved to go to local haunts like Manuel's Tavern and hang out there with the homicide cops. When it came to breaking news, there was nobody better on the law enforcement beat and the police beat than Kathy Scruggs. How did she become the person or find out that Richard Jewell was under investigation? Well, Kathy worked very hard at trying to find the story. Her, one of her mottos was, we're not in the business of being last. And so she worked very hard to source the story. She heard a tip. She reached back out to a very good source of hers. They met in a bar, and together they discussed the fact that Richard Jewell had turned 
from being the hero to the lead suspect. And um, this person explained to Kathy that Richard was a wannabe cop. There was a lot of what was in that behavioral science unit profile that Kent had talked about. And now Kathy comes back into the newsroom and says, let's run this story. And so the next morning, Ron Martz, her partner on the story, calls the FBI and in a very unusual situation, reads the FBI the story verbatim and says, I have two questions. Number one, is the story accurate? And number two, will it hinder the investigation? The FBI agent, who's the public affairs officer, says, no, I'm already hearing Richard Jewell's name from other news organizations, so it will not ruin the investigation. And number two, for the most part, the story is true. There's certain things I can't confirm because I don't know them. But for the most part, the story sounds true. And I should note that this public affairs officer really wasn't involved in the investigation. So he sort of didn't know the two of them were a little bit at cross purposes. And, they go, and Ron Martz gets off the phone, tells his editors what had happened, and they decide to run with the story. So this story comes out, the AJC's special afternoon edition with the headline, FBI suspects hero guard may have planted bomb. And we should note, this is 1996, and it's the dawn of online media and 24-7 news coverage. Publishing the story is akin to like pulling the pin off the grenade. How does the FBI react when they know, when they hear that the AJC is going to run with this story? So the... FBI agent who took the call marches upstairs, tells his boss what happened. They tell the entire crew, the leadership of the FBI, and there is fist pounding all around. Nobody, nobody wanted this out. The profile that I mentioned was part interview advice, and it was very clear that there were there were going to be two interviews. One, a soft interview with Richard Jewell, just getting him to talk about what happened, and then if it turns out that that led to something, or even if it didn't, because the assumption was, frankly by most that he did it. Following that, maybe a couple of days later would be the hard-hitting interview. But the interview wasn't going to happen for a day, a couple of days. It, w it was still in the works. Suddenly, the interview had to happen that day. So, right, there's this rush to get Jewel in to be interviewed before the story hits. And you've got two agents assigned to interrogate Jewel, Don Johnson and D. Rosario. And Johnson makes up a ruse to get Jewel in to talk. How did they get Jewel to come in for questioning? Well, the, the two agents went to his mother's apartment, Bobby Jewel's apartment, knocked on the door. Uh, Richard Jewel was concerned because he had already gone out on the steps. Media was starting to gather because word of the impending story was coming out. And somebody said, are they looking at you? Are you a suspect? I, no, I'm not a suspect. And he goes back in. So he asks Don Johnson, am I a suspect? No, you're not a suspect. And then Don Johnson, I think, is just trying to figure out a way to get him in. And as law enforcement do in lots of circumstances, you create a ruse. And they're thinking, this is the bomber. So the ruse becomes, we just want you to come in and we're going to do a training video for first responders. And we're even going to film it. So Richard Jules like a little skeptical of this, but this is the FBI telling him this. So he said, well, I'll do it. But what happens if I go in with you? They'll think I'm under arrest. And it may have been Bobby Jewell who said, why don't you just drive separate cars? So the agents walk out through a group of media. Richard Jewell walks out behind them. Uh, Kathy Scruggs is actually in the parking lot next to her Mazda Miata. They walk out. The agents turn one way. They go to the right. Richard Jewell walks towards his pickup truck walks within four or five feet of Kathy Scruggs, gets in, people are asking him questions, did you do it, did you do it? 
he follows the agents in, and as they're driving the FBI, to the FBI headquarters, the story's coming out. Just before the story comes out, we're on the phone with Washington, with Louis Free, Merrick Garland, others. And Louis Free's head of the FBI at this Louis point. Louis Free's director of the FBI at this point. And Merrick Garland is at the Justice Department. And so we're talking about what do we do about Miranda? Well, the decision was made. Richard Jewell's coming in, but he's free to leave. He's not under arrest. We don't have enough to arrest him. So the idea was just let him know he's free to leave. And then if he's ever at any point going to be placed under arrest, immediately read him his Miranda rights. So that's the decision. So as Louis Free and, and Merrick Garland are mulling over this decision, less than an hour into the interview, the agents Don Johnson and D. Rosario get word from Washington insisting that Jewel should be given Miranda rights. But Jewel thinks he's only there to film a training video for first responders. How, Kevin, how did they pull that off in the interview room? At that point, um, Don Johnson says, Richard, this is for exactly what we told you it's for meaning the training video. We're still going to use this for training purposes, but I want to make it even more realistic. And so we're even going to go so far as to read you your rights. And um, Richard Jewell, of course, and as a law enforcement officer, has read those rights to people hundreds of times. And he knows this is no longer a training video. And you just watch his face. We've seen the video of that. And you just watch his face just completely drop. It's a shocking moment for him. And yet, you know, Richard is certain that he is not involved in this. And so he, you know, decides to go on with the interview. But is it regular procedure for the director of the FBI to be involved in a questioning like that? Unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. But in this case, when you're the director of the FBI and you've had things like Waco go horribly wrong, you've had Oklahoma City, you want to make sure that things go right. And from Louis Free's perspective, I'm sure that's what he wanted to do. So part of the issue became he was making calls from 500 miles away about things going on in Atlanta. But a further issue yet is nobody could hear what was going on in that room. So there was some lack of communication here and lack of knowledge that ended up getting amplified into a bigger problem because decisions were being made outside of that room. And uh, at the end of the day, this whole experience changed Richard Jewell's life in ways he could have never predicted and imagined in the life of his mother, Bobby Jewell. What they went through afterwards is something I would never want to see anyone go through. We are getting the behind-the-scenes story of the man wrongly accused of planning a bomb at the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta with Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin. They're authors of The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. We're going to take a short break, but stick around for the story of a man wronged and ultimately redeemed when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Next month, Clint Eastwood's much-anticipated film, Richard Jewell, comes out in theaters. My guests consulted for the film, Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin, interviewed nearly 200 people and went through thousands of pages of documents and records and articles to research their new book, 
this suspect. Kent Alexander played a critical role in clearing Jewell's name. He was U.S. attorney for the Northern Georgia District at that time. Kevin Salwin was editor for the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the 1996 Summer Olympic Games. They're going to be at the Atlanta History Center tonight to talk about the book with Bert Roten, who was at the AJC at the time, and John Pruitt, who was anchor at WSB-TV. Both of them are now retired. Let's pick up here. There is so much detail in this book after you two spoke with so many people, but I'm going to squash things together and just say the jewel never even charged, but absolutely vilified in public. There was a uh, well-publicized search of his home, the parking lot outside of his apartment complex on Buford Highway, where he lived with his mother, thick with reporters. Very few people publicly encouraging restraint. Now, he's got his friend, Watson Bryant, initially representing him. He was way over his head as a commercial loan lawyer. But he assembles his legal team. And meanwhile, Kent, you were meeting with one of those lawyers, Jack Martin, from the team, and made a deal with him for investigators to interview Jewel again and either charge him or not. And ended up, after that interview, writing a letter saying he was no longer a target. And Richard Jewell holds a press conference at the Marriott in Atlanta two days later. This is the first time I have ever asked you to turn your cameras on me. For 88 days, I lived a nightmare. For 88 days, my mother lived a nightmare too. And it's rushed for the headline that the hero was the bomber. The media cared nothing for my feelings as a human being. So leading up to that letter, how did you and the FBI come to realize that he had not planted the bomb? So the more we reviewed, the more it became apparent that there was as much showing that Richard Jewell did not do it as he did. So it was a matter of just looking through it through an objective prism. And as time went on, it became clearer and clearer that it, it just didn't look like he was the bomber. So we're talking a period of three months, ultimately, before the, I wrote this letter. It's called a non-target letter. Technically, it just says you're not a target of the investigation, but the media took that as a full clearance, which was great. That was the hope. Uh, at that point, it was time, we thought, to make an unusual statement, a public statement about somebody's status at the Justice Department. Normally, if somebody's under investigation, you never talk about it. But with Richard Jewell... It just seemed like the fair thing to do since his name had been muddied and splashed so badly to put something out. The FBI, to their credit, uh, they were fully supportive. They said, it's the right thing to do. Let's do it. So by the time you wrote and delivered that letter, the FBI had a sketch of what they were calling Goatee Man, who turned out to be the actual bomber, Eric Robert Rudolph. But Richard Jewell's legal team goes after NBC, CNN, the New York Post, all of whom settle with him. The AJC fought the lawsuit in a case that went all the way up to the Georgia Supreme Court. Finally, the AJC prevailed. But from a media and public perspective, why do you think people were so willing to seize on this story that Richard Jewell was guilty? This is 1996 is a fascinating year in media because it's the year that it's, so CNN's already up and running. But Fox News Channel starts up that year. MSNBC starts up that year. Several publications, major publications, go online for the first time. And now, all of a sudden, the pace of media starts to completely change. And with that, the public's expectation for when they should receive information completely starts to shift. And in many ways, it's social media set in a pre-social media environment. Mm -hmm. 
what you're seeing most of the reporters and journalists do is very much the equivalent of today's, you know, retweets or Facebook shares. There's not a lot of information being gathered, but instead they turn the dial a little bit, they repeat the stories, or they amplify the stories in a way that's remarkably damaging. And Richard Jewell's life starts to become this cloistered, incredibly claustrophobic experience inside his own mother, inside his mother's apartment. And the, the blinds are drawn. One of his friends described it as like being a rat in a cage. Mm. I mean, it was, it's dark. He's watching television and every channel has him as the lead suspect. He's, he's called a failed fat sheriff deputy. He's called the Unabubba by Jay Leno on The Tonight Show. Um, he's, he's compared to the guy who whacked Nancy Kerrigan in the Winter Olympics. And Jay Leno says, you know, what is it about fat, stupid guys at the Olympics? So in the court of public opinion, Richard Jewell is absolutely tried and convicted, whereas in the court of law enforcement, that's not happened. Yeah. And to tack on to what Kevin said, one reason the public wanted to know so much is this was the biggest story of the Olympics. And when I was the FBI, we had never seen any reaction like this to an ongoing investigation ever. And this sounds like it was the sign of things to come in many ways. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's mm -hmm. super true. And um, the interesting thing is it moves much more quickly now. For Richard Jewell, it was three months basically cloistered in his home. You know, now it's over in three days. And everybody moves on, except for the sad person who is in the crosshairs of this. I can't help but think that what Richard Jewell went through feels like a precursor of what we see today with online cancel culture. And I'm wondering, with the rise of social media, is, is this a growing problem? Are we seeing more Richard Jewells or fewer? The democratization of media is a blessing and a curse. You know, in many ways, it's given us far more voices than we had before. We have the opportunity to hear from a wide range of perspectives, that kind of thing. At the same time, what uh, social media in particular has done is it's allowed all of those incorrect stories to be amplified. To add on, there are definitely more Richard Jewels today. There are Richard Jewels every single day. With social media, when a name goes out and a false accusation goes out, that happens day in day out. The difference is somebody's name can be cleared instantly or they can become a huge suspect instantly. In this instance, I really shudder to think what would have happened if there had truly been social media back in 1996. As bad as it was, the number of people who come out of the woodwork on Reddit, on Facebook, Twitter, you name it, with things they want to say, I don't know how you recover from something like that. And while some people may move on now when they're named as a suspect or they're, they're falsely accused because the news cycle moves on, their reputation lives on on the Internet forever. So it's, uh, it's a problem. I have to say my heart broke for Richard Jewell. You know, uh, a man who, like all of us, ha certainly had his faults. But what did you come to think of him as a person and as a hero? Yeah, I'll, I'll start on that. I, th I think... Um I think Richard was very human. You know, he he had, he was gregarious. Um, he was a he was a smart police officer at times who did very good work. Um, 
and but at the same time he had his flaws he had his very human flaws but the fact that um two of the largest institutions in our country the FBI and the media uh, make the mistake and, jo and essentially join forces to ruin his life um makes this an american tragedy and richard jewell is the is a the person who should have a statue of him in atlanta and um should be known as being a hero and the fact that there's still this muddiness among the population to as to whether richard jewell actually was the villain or what his role was should be clarified and we're hoping that this book you know kent and i were exhaustive on this we we did 187 interviews. We read through over 90,000 pages in documents. We did a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests to get the story right because we felt Richard Jewell deserved that and we felt that everybody needed to know the real story. I just love Richard Jewell. What happened to him was tragic, but he's the person who really saved the Olympic Games in a lot of ways. Kent Alexander, Kevin Salwin, I want to thank you both so much for speaking with me. Our pleasure. Absolutely great to be here. Kent Alexander and Kevin Selwyn, the co-authors of the book The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. They are consultants for the forthcoming film Richard Jewell from director Clint Eastwood. You can watch a trailer for the film at our website, gpbnews.org. Both Kent and Kevin will be at the Atlanta History Center tonight to talk about their book, along with Bert Roten. He's formerly of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and John Pruitt, longtime anchor of WSB-TV, now retired. English singer-songwriter Robin Hitchcock has been making music for more than 40 years now. Originally inspired by pop rock from the likes of the Beatles, his tunes vary from jangly psychedelia to somber acoustic numbers. He's released more than 20 records, whether under his name or as a member of the Soft Boys, a band he founded in 1976. Hitchcock's music has been inspired by his peers and in turn influenced a number of other acts. Athens band R.E.M., for example, covered one of his songs called Arms of Love. This is Hitchcock's original version. Robin Hitchcock will be at Eddie's Attic tomorrow night, November 13th, for not one but two shows, one at 7 and another at 10. Hitchcock took a moment to tell us about how his career and near-constant touring brought him from his roots in a, quote, dismal English seaside town, those are his words, by the way, to gung-ho Nashville. Well, I've worked in the States. I've played in the States for 40 years. So physically... Being based in Nashville is no big deal, really. I've always worked over here. It's as if I'm a commuter, if you like, and I've just commuted across the Atlantic. Spending time in both countries allows Hitchcock to compare and contrast the two. While he's quick to point out that they are similar in terms of 20th century music and even current political struggles, there is at least one major difference. Um, I think you get to America and there's a photograph of the president saying, I welcome you to this great country. Britain, basically, if you had to have something, an emblem that summed us up, I think, I'm sorry, love, we're closed, does it? You know, we are very 
proud of what can't be done. Um, I'm sorry, we, you know, we're all sorry, we're all out of cheese. Oh, we're just closed, sorry. It, it's all about what we can't do. America is a can-do society. Good old American know-how, you know. Um, I kind of like both attitudes. Having spent a lifetime in the, the damp negativity of Britain, I, I've enjoyed coming over here and basking in the, in the sort of hey-ho, let's go that, that is in the States. But, but I, I really respect British dismalia, as I call it. I am a dismal guy in a can-do country. That's exactly it. In fact, the phrase, sorry love, we're closed, decorates the cover of an EP Hitchcock just recently released. This from a collaboration with another British music legend, Andy Partridge, from the band XTC. Uh, Andy Partridge and I recorded the material for A Planet England in his shed, in his back garden in Swindon. Um, Most of it was done over 10 years ago, but for a whole variety of reasons, we only finished it off last year. mesh pretty well, you know, we're both children of the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and also people like Captain Beefheart and Sid Barrett who started the Pink Floyd, you know, we're the same age, we're both 1953 babies, you know, we're rocking pensioners moving into our late 60s. Collaborations aside, Hitchcock has also released two of his own singles this year, including one track that was written for the 2018 movie Juliet Naked, starring Rose Byrne, Ethan Hawke, and Chris O'Dowd. The other came from a very different place, something you saw in the news. So I wrote Take Off Your Bandages after the horrific shootings at the um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School early 2018. And um, a lot of the, the reaction of the students themselves to the usual thoughts and prayers kind of um, blanket that is just thrown over these horrors by um, people who, in whose interests it is to do nothing about gun control. There is a feeling that young, I feel, I hope that there are young people, especially those who've experienced this kind of atrocity, who are not prepared to stand for any more. And there are younger people coming up into politics who perhaps, perhaps, possibly, if they get the chance, will steer things in another direction. Robin Hitchcock will pull from his large repertoire at Eddie's Attic tomorrow night for two sets. I love playing Eddie's Attic. As usual at Eddie's, um, it's no repeat, so I will play a completely different set of songs in set two, unless there's an overwhelming mob of people baying for the same song in both sets. But And there's a piano, which is great. I've been playing a lot of piano lately, and um, what I'm currently working on is a collection of piano songs. It's not my main instrument, so it'll be quite a long time before it's ready, but that's my 
my next solo project. And I'm really looking forward to being back at Eddie's. It's great. I love it. Musician Robin Hitchcock there. He's going to be performing at Eddie's Attic twice tomorrow, Wednesday, November 13th at 7 and at 10. You heard songs from Robin Hitchcock, including Arms of Love, Take Off Your Bandages, plus a track from his collaboration with Andy Partridge called Planet England. And now an oldie, but a goodie. This is Somewhere Apart, a song he says is an homage of sorts to John Lennon, as well as one of his own favorites. That's it for today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. And I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. <laughs>